Hi, I'm Jessica from Tudor Time Machine. Before we start the next episode, I wanted to let you know that we're offering our very first line of Tudor Time Machine merch. So these six items are only available until November 30th. Then their history. See what I did there? Go to our Facebook page and hit the Shop Now button to see our Tudorific designs, the best pod swag out there. This inaugural offering is 10% off. So don't miss these items that declare your interest and your style. And enjoy this episode of the Tudor Time Machine podcast. Hey ho, Tudor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tudor Time Machine, and this is episode 37 of our podcast. Wow, 37. I know. <laughs> Thank you for coming along on this journey with us. And if you're new here, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, so it goes in order. It's so exciting to see where all our listeners come from, from all over the world. It's fantastic. And we've had such a great time researching this project and sharing it with all of you. And if you're enjoying it, support us. Buy some great Tudor Time Machine swag. Please go to our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page, hit the Shop Now button, and you'll see all this great stuff we have for sale. So get a Do You Tutor tea or a sweatshirt. I love the sweatshirts. You can support this podcast at the same time. In our last episode, the court was enjoying some Christmas tide misrule and everything was topsy turvy. But now we're taking our Tudor time machine back to 1527 to see how Margaret and Anne are doing with Thomas Wyatt being away. Then we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 37. 1527, Anne Boleyn's Chamber, in which Thomas gives up the chase and Anne is caught. Thomas Wyatt bled ink from Dover to Rome in his heart-sick frenzy. He intended Margaret to pass along his words, hide them from the king. Margaret would not let these embers flame. She kept his letters for Anne in a purse by the privy. And yet she was fair. She did not send Anne's letters for her brother, either. Those she hid among her shifts. But at last, a scathing note describing a consuming love for the king, and written in the flurry of insult. This one, Margaret forwarded to her brother. His response was immediate, and worthy of ending her careful evasion of Anne. In latter days, Margaret might have quipped that the jewels on Anne's fingers were blinding, but today she kept her entrance simple, curtsying low and requesting a moment alone. Your brother has left me, Margaret, and you feel you must follow suit? Margaret was shamed. But what could she say? She could not admit duplicitousness. Will you not speak to me? Anne followed. Will you find another great friend in whomever Thomas loves next? Have you no loyalties of your own? Anne was changed by the king's interest. Margaret could see that. Anne was a woman of books. The ear of the king was a powerful lure. The wound of lost love made her a fortress to his advances and enticed him. Anne's eye was an arrow. How could the king not love her? And how could her brother not love her? and even courtiers who once despised Anne Boleyn now saw her worth. In the flock of peacocks, she was the falcon of her crest, fast, keen, and alone. I am ashamed of my brother's deeds. I have sought to conceal myself, but I have a verse from Thomas, a response to your last letter. 
Should I hear it or no? It is not cruel. No. He does not care to wound me as he once did. Did you not write to him, saying you choose the king? In the middle of the night, with so much anger inside me, you cannot think how I imagined him. I struggled to poison each word and how I prayed they would bring him to his knees and shock him out of his coward silence. But from your look, Margaret, I can guess the verse is no tumult of apology. You read it to me. Anne's speech felt like blows on Margaret's head. She squinted in discomfort and waving the paper insistently said, No, you must read it yourself. His curly hand makes me want to vomit. His S's. I cannot see his S's. You must read it. Margaret glanced down. The offending letter was strewn everywhere. Whoso list to hunt, I know where is a hind. But as for me, I may no more. The vain travail hath wearied me so sore. I am of them that furthest come behind. Yet may I by no means my wearied mind draw from the deer. But as she fleeth afore, fainting I follow. I leave off, therefore, since in a net I seek to hold the wind. Who list her hunt, I put him out of doubt, as well as I may spend his time in vain. And graven in diamonds, in letters plain, there is written her fair neck round about. Nole me tangere, for Caesar's I am, and wild to hold though I seem tame. Anne was silent. When she spoke, her voice was unsteady, and she turned her face away from Margaret. His best verse yet. A fine nod to Petrarch. Thomas shows himself well as he leaves the field. An elegant turn of an empty heart. Thomas writes these things, but I know he cares for you still. Regret made Margaret speak unwisely. How do you know? I feel it in my bones. He is gone. Turned me over to his rival, and praised Henry as Caesar. He has no choice. Thomas wishes to set things in order so he may return to court in favour. Is that not so, Margaret? Anne, the bitterness of the loss fills your words, but this verse of my brother's shows a wise impulse for your safety and his own. I do not care. I cannot bear that my brother is the cause of your suffering. Margaret, I love him. I hate him. And with the king, I sometimes imagine... <gasps> no, do not say it. Do not say it. I do not tumble with the king. Margaret was nonplussed. And still he shows you such favour? For the powerful no is a love potion. You are indeed bold to deny the king. Margaret, I love your brother. But since he does not love me, perhaps I should allow the king his prize. He is gallant. You surprise me, Anne. I thought you were in his majesty's bed without question. I cannot remember the last time he lay with the queen. And he must lie with her. He needs an heir, Margaret said. Anne was silent. In this chapter, Margaret reads what is probably the most famous poem by Wyatt, Whoso List to Hunt. But actually, it's hard to know exactly when Wyatt wrote it. It wasn't published until 1557, which was years after his death. And then it was included in Toddle's Miscellany. Yeah, we've talked about this Tudor bestseller poetry collection in past episodes. And we've also discussed how a courtier poet like Wyatt would never have distributed his work to the public in the way we think of it. Poems would have been passed around at court and admired, but not published as we think of it. It might well be that Wyatt kept this poem to himself. It could have gotten him into trouble. Because it would have been clear to a contemporary audience that Anne Boleyn is the hind and Henry VIII is Caesar. And I don't think Henry would have liked that. And in Tottle's Miscellany, the title is actually, quote, The lover, despairing to attain unto his lady's grace, relinquisheth the pursuit. Oh, I like relinquisheth. <laughs> I like how in the 16th century, everything was eth. I think we should still use that. I will make eth. 
a coffee? I am going to walk eth the dog. <laughs> it's catchy. <laughs> it sort of makes what you're doing sound very, very important. One of my favorite lines in this Wyatt sonnet is, since in a net I seek to hold the wind. I think that's a great image. I think that's a great image, too. And weirdly, the poet, the beat poet, Allen Ginsberg, talked about this poem um, once, and he said he considered the line, I know where is a hind, as a famous dirty pun. He said, I know where there's a behind, like whoever wants to go out and get laid, I know where there's an ass. A little poem to some really great whore that was the king's mistress who was making it with everybody and Wyatt had tried it but had been beaten in the various court contests to see if he could make out with her. (laughs) It's kind of reducing it to its most basic idea. I don't even know where he gets the whole great whore thing Mm -hmm. from. I feel like that is not suggested in the poem. I feel he is misreading. (laughs) I mean, I don't associate a hind, which was a female red deer species, with a whore. You know, I associate it with big, sad brown eyes, cute Bambi fawns, and being free in the woods and leaping about. Did they even use behind to mean ass in the 16th century? I am not sure. We need an expert in Tudor linguistics to answer that. But the Tudors did love a dirty pun, even when they were being serious. Right, and we will give Ginsburg that. But this most famous of Wyatt sonnets is actually based on a sonnet by the Italian poet Francesco Petrarca. We anglicize it to Petrarch. Not Plutarch, I always make that mistake. I always conflate them. But Plutarch was the Greek philosopher and historian, and Petrarch was the humanist classical scholar, manuscript collector, and Renaissance poet, most famous for his lyric poems to his beloved Laura, who he apparently never spoke to. I bet Petrarch was a fan of Plutarch. (laughs) (laughs) Don't mix me up. You know, you can go and visit Petrarch's tomb. I will go there. uh, (laughs) It is in a small medieval town in Padua called Arqua. Petrarch's monument is right there in the middle of Petrarch Square. I wonder if Thomas Wyatt made a pilgrimage there when he was in Italy in the 1520s. In 1527, he did go AWOL on an official trip to Rome and ended up being captured in Feria. And Feria is in northern Italy, and so is Padua. So so who knows? Maybe he did go and pay homage to the master. Wyatt was clearly a fan. And what do they say? Imitation is the highest form of flattery. Petrarch's Rima, number 190, which influenced Whoso List to Hunt, goes like this. Now, again, this is a modern translation. A pure white hind appeared to me with two gold horns on green grass between two streams in a laurel shade at sunrise in the unripe season. Touch me not in diamonds and topaz, was written around her lovely neck. It pleased my lord to set me free. The sun had already mounted to midday. My eyes were tired with gazing, but not sated, when I fell into water, and she vanished. That clearly says big whore to me. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's sort of ephemeral and dreamy. I don't know. Clearly, this modern translation, though, they did not keep up the traditional rhyme scheme. No. I mean, I don't envy translators. That's a very, very hard job. It must be 
so difficult and challenging to keep the meaning and the rhyme scheme when translating. We have to put it out there to really appreciate Petrarch's sonnets. You and I would have to spend a year or two learning Renaissance Italian, probably more than more than a year or two. Maybe probably. you could learn it in two years, but it would take me 20 years. 20 years yeah. Petrarch sees the deer for the first time in his work, but in Wyatt's, in the one that Margaret read, there's a sense of history. He has been pursuing the deer for a long time, and he's in competition with others. He is one of them that furthest come behind. In Petrarch, the deer has been set free by her master. In Wyatt's verse, she declares, for Caesar's I am. She has been caught, but not by Wyatt. Poor Wyatt. There's such a sense of loss and just despair in this poem and really exhaustion. And he's literal about that, right? Because he writes, The vain travail hath wearied me so sore. Hopeless love is exhausting, but it makes for a great verse. Petrarch has his great and ideal love for Laura, the wife of a nobleman who Petrarch says he first saw as she sat in church, but he has little or no actual contact with her. No, he said it was a, quote, an overpowering but pure love affair. So it was painful but productive because Petrarch is credited with perfecting the sonnet form, the Petrarchian sonnet as it came to be known. Wyatt's poetry is definitely more immediate. It's more longing. And I just, I don't think he's worried about being pure. No, I agree. And a sonnet, to review your high school poetry class, I know I need to review my high school poetry class, is a 14-line verse usually reflecting on one idea with a clarification or a turn or a sort of twist at the end. The Petrarchian sonnet divides the 14 lines into two sections. An eight-line stanza called an octave, rhyming A-B-B-A, A-B-B-A, and a six-line stanza called a sestet, which rhymes C-D-C-D-C-D, or C-D-E, C-D-E. So for some other examples of the form, Milton wrote When I Consider How My Light Is Spent as a Petrarchian sonnet, and in the 19th century, Elizabeth Barrett Browning's How Do I Love Thee is also in the Petrarchian form. It's a form that people used and still play with now. Thomas Wyatt is credited with bringing the sonnet form to England and also for, as his bio on the Poetry Foundation website points out, bringing contemporary political issues into poetic work. So for this combination of formalistic innovation and historical reflection, today he's considered the most important poet of the first half of the 16th century. I hadn't thought about that before, but it's really true that Wyatt brings, I guess you could say, Tudor current events to his work. Well, he writes explicitly about the executions at the Tower in 1536. He writes about the execution of Cromwell. He writes about being at court with all its privileges, but also how insecure it is. He does write about his inner life and about historical events. And Whoso Lister Hunt is an example of Wyatt's formalistic innovation. It's referred to as an Italian sonnet, which I personally find a little bit confusing because I always think of Petrarch as being the Italian sonnet. But no, an Italian sonnet and a Petrarchian sonnet are different because in the Italian sonnet, the octave is the same as the Petrarchian sonnet, 
but the six-line sestet rhymes C, D, D, C, E, E. And the other form Wyatt developed, along with Henry Howard, our own Earl of Surrey, is called the English sonnet. It condenses the 14 lines into one stanza with three quatrains, and then there's a concluding couplet for the twist at the end. So it's A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. And this form devised by Wyatt and Surrey, of course, leads us to the late 16th century and the Shakespearean sonnet. So Petrarch to Wyatt, Wyatt to Surrey, Wyatt and Surrey to the big bard himself, to Shakespeare. Petrarch was very influential. Some historians credit him with initiating the Italian Renaissance. <laughs> that is, wow. <laughs> you and I, That's a big claim to fame. Yes. You and I definitely ascribe to Leo Tolstoy's theory of history that the causes of historical events are infinitely varied and unknowable. And that historical writing, which definitively ascribes change to a particular great man, therefore falsifies history. So we won't give Petrarch credit for the entire <laughs> Renaissance and all the ideas of humanism. <laughs> After all, the Crusades, for better or worse, brought back lots of classical texts that had been preserved in the Ottoman Empire. But... And Petrarch had a lot of friends who were thinking the same way he was. Yes. And, yeah. Many things were going on. But to take nothing away from Petrarch, he did devote much of his time and resources to traveling far and wide and collecting ancient Latin manuscripts that otherwise might have crumbled away. In particular, Petrarch in 1345 rediscovered a trove of Cicero's letters that he wrote to his friend Titus Atticus, which were incredibly detailed about Cicero's personal life. And these letters were very confessional. They were very honest. They revealed his day-to-day -day moods. He didn't edit himself because he was writing to his close friend. And this correspondence spans more than 20 years. That is a lot of letters and a lot of details, intimate details, about day-to-day -day Roman life. Petrarch was influenced by Cicero and other Roman thinkers whose manuscripts he read and preserved, and he became known as one of the greatest classical scholars of his day. But he was also a devout Christian and very influenced by St. Augustine. Petrarch personified this mixing of classical philosophy and the ideas of a worthy life with Christianity, and that was a new way of thinking. The early Christians differentiated themselves from the Romans by moving away from the great thinkers of the empire. Up until the middle of the 14th century, devout Christians were just uneasy with classical scholarship, with admiring classical art, with reading mythology, all of those kind of things. And Petrarch struggled with, and I, I guess you could say he ended up reconciling the opposing ideas of the Roman thinkers who emphasized civic life, duty to the community, and to the state, and concerns of the day-to-day -day world with the Christian ideal that a worthy life was one removed from the world, preferably spent in a monastery or a nunnery, dedicated to contemplation, and concerned almost exclusively with the afterlife. Petrarch wanted to enjoy his life on earth without feeling guilty. Yes. I mean, he wanted to read Marcus Aurelius, see some great art, and go to heaven. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> So arguing this view of a good life, Petrarch writes as himself in dialogue with St. Augustine in front of the virtue truth. 
Petrarch seeks to find a way to be spiritual and concerned with earthly matters at the same time that will pass the judgment of his hero, Augustine, and also the judgment of the virtue truth. Another example of the way he's sort of melding classical heroes and Christian heroes is he started out writing these biographies as heroes from Roman history, but later he added biblical figures, beginning with the Old Testament figures of Adam and Noah and people like that. So again, he's sort of trying to marry all these things so that they don't seem disconnected. They seem like they were all part of one tradition. Most of his writing advanced this idea of continuity between ideals of the classical world and of Christianity. It's really interesting because reading all of this about Petrarch and his intellectual marriage of classical and Christian, it makes it more comprehensible to me why devout tutors were dressing up as gods and goddesses and freely having statues of Neptune and Jupiter and Apollo and Mercury in their gardens. And that's something I never really understood before. It seems so incongruous, even contradictory. It also explains why there was so much emphasis on reading the classics mm -hmm. and learning Latin in the humanist education that Elizabeth and her educated contemporaries received. Petrarch's ideals allowed the scholarship of classics to meld with the scholars of the church. A lot of priests became experts in what we would think of as humanist subjects, right? And there's this marriage of the church and humanist ideas. And a great example of that would be somebody like Sir Thomas More, because he was deeply religious. And he was a type of individual who, before the ideas of Renaissance humanism, would have probably joined a monastery. But guided by these ideas that Petrarch popularized, More was able to justify the value of a civic life a life at court, a life involved with politics, a life discussing political ideas, discussing political theory like he does in Utopia, with a godly life, and ultimately a saintly life, where religion was so important to him. And a family life. Moore had a very rich family life. Mm -hmm. And Moore believed it was his duty before God to stay engaged in all these earthly matters. Embracing the classical world also encouraged and did not ban theater, art, and poetry. And Sir Thomas Wyatt was a product of all this relatively new humanist and Renaissance thinking when he brought the sonnet back to England and wrote, Whoso List to Hunt is a perfect example of that line. And is very disgruntled by this poem, though. Yeah. Being, being a well-educated woman, she calls it a fine nod to Petrarch in our chapter. She just takes it personally, as, of course, you would understand she might. It will fall to Margaret to clean up this mess between her friend and her brother. So we'll see how that goes. But next time, we'll go back to Constance and see what she can find out about Sir Thomas White's bastard son, Sir Francis Darrell. Maybe he'll hold the secrets <laughs> that they need to learn. So tune in next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk. Wow.